Thank you for joining us today uh, for our Kennan Institute discussion, Central Asian Perceptions of Great Powers, a prototype for the post-unipolar world. We'll be discussing how ordinary citizens of Central Asia perceive Russia, China, and the United States, and how their opinions may change over time. Um, we aim to explore Central Asia's multivectoral policies or policy of balancing the Sino-Russian relationship and the loss of influence of the US in the region. Um, today's discussion is the seventh installment of the Kennan Institute's Facebook Live series, um, which aimed to bring America's leading experts on Russia and the region directly to you. My name is Bradley Jardin. I am the Schwarzman Fellow of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. My work focuses on great power relations in Central Asia and the ways in which China's internal policies in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region spill over into its relations in Eurasia. I'm very excited to be joined today by Marlene Laruel, who is the Director and Research Professor with the Institute um, for European, Russian, Eurasian Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs. And she is also the Director of Central Asia Programme at George Washington University and Co-Director of Ponars Eurasia. Marlene is also co-author of the fantastic upcoming Kenan Cable, No Great Game, Central Asia's Public Opinions on Russia, China, and the United States which we will be discussing today. Before I begin, I want to remind our audience that they can submit their questions directly on the Facebook live chat or via the email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org. Please be sure to include your name and your affiliation when asking your questions. So we'll discuss, begin our discussion with talking about great power relations and how Central Asia fits in the middle of it. Essentially, what we're seeing a lot of in the news is rapidly deteriorating US-China relations and also what appears to be a growing Sino-Russian partnership um, and a division of labor in Central Asia more broadly. It seems to be coming clear that we are entering now an era of great power rivalry. America's post-Soviet unipolar moment appears to be rapidly coming to an end. So in this context, Central Asia offers something of an interesting case study, bordering many of the great powers and being right in the epicenter of a rising Asia, not just in terms of China, but also with um, other powers and actors in the region, such as India, and also increasingly Japan and Korea being more active in the region more broadly, and how these terms influence debate. Um, so with, in terms of China, with the Belt and Road Initiative, the growth of Chinese arms, surveillance technology transfers, decline of human rights around the world and rise of populist sentiments, Central Asia is very much a good test case for what we mean by this concept of a post-unipolar order. Often what's missing from this debate is perspectives of Central Asians themselves. And that's why Marlene's new report is very interesting, which draws from data and surveys and opinions on um, how China perceives each of these actors in the region. So in this sense, one thing that really struck me of the report, uh, Marlene, was the fact that Russia remains far and away the most popular actor um, in all categories assessed. I wonder if you can begin by telling us a little bit about, you know, what are the foundations of Russian soft power in the region today and how sustainable are they in the, the longer term? Yeah, I think that's really one of the key elements of our discussion. And I wanted to thank you for, for uh, um, inviting me today. And thanks to the, the Kenan Institute for organizing that, that discussion online. 
Yeah, what we found really interesting by looking at the, the perception of great power by Central Asian public opinion is that these perceptions are much more differentiated than what are the state official policies. And then we really see Russia very high, China relatively low, and US very low. And so that's much more visible in public opinion than it is even in the, the foreign policy, the official foreign policy of the Central Asian state. And in relation to Russia, what is really, I think, fascinating is to see how much Russia has been able to remain a key kind of cultural yardstick for, for Central Asian. And of course, we need to dissociate by state, by country, and by generation. And uh, uh, what we see emerging very clearly is that, of course, older people tend to be more connected to Russia, in, especially in terms of political or cultural vision. Younger generation have a more dissociated spectrum of, of interest, but are still very much oriented toward Russia. And we also dissociated by country with Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan being much more oriented toward Russia, probably because labor migration also, of course, play a critical role. And what is interesting is that Kazakhstan is really turned toward Russia. I mean, Kazakhstani public opinion turned toward Russia globally. But when you looked more in detail in terms of Russian cultural influences, you can see that the Kazakhstani can afford a kind of broader spectrum of influence, more toward the West, more toward Asia, uh, uh, more to, you mentioned Japan, South Korea, more toward Turkey. So, so the Kazakhstani public uh, uh, perception of Russia is more nuanced when you look at the granular level, even if it's globally very, 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 very positive. And also for the few data we have about Uzbekistan and, and even less for Turkmenistan, of course, it seems that the public opinion of these two countries are globally also more pro-Russian than what the, the, the policy, the official policy of these two states are, but, but the data are really difficult to, to, to trust for these two countries. So yeah, Russia has been able to maintain this kind of status. At the same time, it's a moving status. I wouldn't say it's a very stable one, right? But you can see it's still very much people-to-people -people relation in the fact that people have family members in Russia, that people travel to Russia, that labor migration, of course, are important for, for Kyrgyz, Tajik, and Uzbek, that you have all these ed educational flows of tens of thousands of students from Central Asia still going to Russia. And then you have all the cultural, the Russian cultural production on television, you know, like films, miniseries, music, all that make that the Russian presence is still very physically there in the, the Central Asian everyday life, while China or the US, even more the US, are really much far away in terms of what they can propose concretely uh, uh, to the Central Asians. We don't hear you, Brad. You're mute. Um, in terms of Russia, its soft power in the region is, is far more dense, you know, a lot of these people-to-people -people contacts. One thing I started to notice um, when I was in Beijing um, last year was there are a lot more Central Asians now appearing at Chinese academic institutions, particularly getting involved in, in business. You know, many of the Kazakhs I spoke with, they were involved in studying renewable energy, um, business in various types, and people um, studying technology and um, big tech. We're also seeing now a lot of Chinese companies in the region, you know, like Huawei opening up training centers in the region. I believe they have one in Kazakhstan, Astana, and they're also opening one in Bishkek. And they're also offering scholarships and grants. So China's kind of a slower actor to the region in terms of its soft power, but 
What are its main vectors at the moment for how it's trying to influence the region, develop contacts, especially with the youth? And are these training schemes and so on, are they large enough in volume to really compete with Russia on a serious level? Yeah, that's good points. And you see China begin this kind of people-to-people -people exchanges like 10 years ago, right? So, so the data we have is more, more limited and that doesn't have the same, of course, historical depth than the connection to Russia. But what we seem to see so far is that all this Chinese effort doesn't necessarily translate into a kind of Sinophile. Sinophilic position by the Central Asians, right? We have research done on like young Central Asians studying in Confucius Institute. Everybody wants to learn Chinese because that's a guarantee for a professional for professional opportunities, but that doesn't make people pro-China. Right? That in, and so that's this kind of moment that are very difficult for China to transform. You can offer a lot of fellowships, but that doesn't make people will suddenly support your culture or your country positioning on the international scene. And I think that in a sense now, especially since the, 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 the re so-called re-education, re-educational camp for Uyghurs and all the polemics around them, especially in Kazakhstan and a little bit less in Kyrgyzstan, I think the, the perception of China has deteriorated in the region and it will be very difficult for the Chinese authority to try to rebuild that. And I think in a sense, they are fine living with that, right? As long as the Central Asian states are kind of cooperative, as long as Chinese firms can get contract, then they realize, okay, the population is not very pro-Chinese, they just want to do business with China, but maybe China doesn't need really more than that. Of course, the point is that if there is a, a moment the, the public opinion could impact the, the state-to-state -state relationship, like in Kazakhstan around the Uyghur issue, there were moments where you could feel like it was also difficult for the Kazakhstani authority to maintain the, the right balance, then that would become a real concern for China. So I think China realized it doesn't have really tools for cultural soft power success, not only in Central Asia, but globally in the world, and even more now with the, the current crisis. And in a sense, it's living with that. Yeah, it's one thing that was interesting in your report is it seems to be a correlation between having friends and relatives in the target country, you know, in Russia, they help reinforce the positive view of Russia in this sense. But with China, you know, it could really be a double-edged sword where you have um, people, friends and relatives being sent possibly to re-education camps or at least having their communications cut uh, with their family. And imagine that reinforces negative perceptions in the region. This is purely anecdotal, but when I was um, in Beijing, I actually had several separate students tell me that flights back home always pass through Xinjiang, particularly the capital of Urumqi. A lot of their families would tell them to book longer flights to actually bypass the region entirely um, because they were so worried about crossing through Xinjiang because they're fully aware of what's going on. And it's very hard to, for China now to build its relations in the region, which is a lost opportunity, you know, with the cultural ties of Xinjiang and Uyghur culture in particular, and even the linkages between Kazakhs based in Xinjiang um, with those across the border. China could really be using Xinjiang as, a, as an asset, as a bridge for the region, particularly as part of its Belt and Road project. But it's done the exact opposite of that in creating this divide in the region. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more to that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that 
China's interpretation of what is its own security in Xinjiang has kind of created this domino chain uh, um, of negative reaction all around uh, uh, in the region. While if you remember in the early 90s when kind of cross-border trade was opening, I mean, things were already difficult for the Uyghurs, but there was this notion that Xinjiang will really become the place of exchanges and, and in fact, it's not, it's not happening anymore now. In a sense, the, the, the trade is really going between Central Asia and the, the big trade center, commercial centers that are mostly kind of maritime, on the maritime side of, of China. And Xinjiang finds itself in this kind of relegated remote position. And of course, the, the, the re-education camp strategy, I think, is really deteriorating the situation. And we also have to realize that in Central Asia, especially among the younger generation, there is a growing feeling of a kind of Islamic identity or, and that can create a feeling also of Islamic solidarity and then reinforcing this kind of old stereotype of China as an enemy of Islam. And I think that's something that is quite uh, uh, probably emerging in the region, even if we don't really have statistical uh, uh, tool in public opinion to see it, but, but we have anecdotal uh, perception of it when we look, for example, at social media discussion in Central Asia. And I think if we look at what is happening in Pakistan, it's also, in fact, the same, this perception that China is not friendly to one Muslim uh, population. Do you think um, the global pandemic has offered an opportunity for China to expand its soft power in the region? Of course, it's making a lot of headway with a lot of the medical supplies it's sending to you know, partners in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. It's, it's made a lot of headway around the world, especially in Italy, where we saw positive receptions toward uh, Chinese aid. Do you think there's been this kind of premium in the region where China's really taken advantage um, of its position with regard to the pandemic and where it's really showing itself to be a responsible stakeholder in combating it? Yeah, I think we don't know. I think it's too early to know. So you have two possible perceptions, right? Is China having created this Chinese virus and therefore China being responsible for the pandemics and for not having taken care of it earlier, for having like whatever. And then the perception of China as helping. And I think you have both probably in the Central Asian population. If you look on the social media, you also have a lot of discussion on the Chinese virus, right? So I think you can have both trends. I don't know yet which one will be kind of winning. <laughs> Maybe it will also depend of the, of the countries and how the, the Chinese assistant will be really understood as being massive and really helping. And now that there is this kind of second wave of the pandemics, especially in, in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, it will be interesting to see if China is really able to make a difference in terms of assistance uh, to medics and so on, or if it's not able to be because there are also other donors uh, present in the countries. So maybe China will also miss the opportunity. So I think it's too early to know, but the two, the two interpretations are possible. I think one thing that would really surprise readers when the, when the report comes out is just how low the US it performs against the other two actors, lagging very far behind Russia and now gradually more and more behind China as well. Um, what do you think are the main limitations of, of US power in the, the region lately? Why, why do you think there is so much hostility? It seemed that the US was often perceived even as the biggest foe of the three actors, uh, despite you know, these policies that we discussed with China and Xinjiang, 
um, or even some of the, the racism that many Central Asian labor migrants might encounter in Russia, why does the US still uh, remain the most lowly regarded? Well, I think you have several layers of explanation, right? You have a structural explanation that Central Asia know very little about the US. The people to people connection are very limited. I mean, who can afford to travel for education in the US or to go for exchange? I mean, it's really a small number of people uh, uh, statistically. Then you have, of course, a kind of old Soviet tradition of being very careful toward the US, but I will be myself much more kind of sober compared to what is usually said in terms of Russian media influence. I think that when we look statistically, people who are more pro-Russian are also more pro-US. People who are critical of Russia are also critical of the US. So statistically, you cannot really say that being pro-Russian means you will be anti-US. So showing that there is a kind of Russian influence in pushing the Central Asians to be anti-American is, I think, not, not demonstrated uh, uh, so far. And of course, that, that's a big <laughs> uh, uh, issue for the policy community to discuss. And then I think you have several other elements. And that also depends of the country. I think in Kyrgyzstan, for example, there is a real feeling of disappointment toward the US because there have been a gap between what the US has been saying about its own interest for the region and its own engagement for the region and what the people have been perceiving as being, well, in fact, a quite low engagement. So the US is interested in Central Asia only because of Afghanistan or because of Iran or because of China, Russia, but not really for the region. And so I think the US have been sending very mixed signals about the reason of their engagement in the region. And therefore that contributed to a kind of uh, disillusion pattern. Then I think you have other uh, elements that play a role. And one is the, what I call the rise of conservative values in Central Asia. You really can see that uh, for the majority of the, the public opinion, the US is perceived as trying to force too much the imposition of foreign value that are interpreted as too liberal for what the Central Asian societies uh, uh, can afford. So all the discussion about LGBT rights, all the kind of promotion, you know, ethnic minority, sexual minority, women, uh, uh, equal right, all these kind of elements, and of course the LGBT one is the key question. All these elements, I think, have been quite badly received by the majority of Central Asians because they are perceived as being too much, going too fast, too imposing, too foreign, and, and, and of course that kind of has backlash on, on the US. And so in part, as part of the, this project, we have been doing uh, focus groups on uh, Kazakhstani perception of the US and really this critical of the US as promoting too much liberal values was very much part of the discussion. And people were also very critical, which for me was a surprise about uh, uh, US cultural products. So everybody could say, yeah, we watch US films, of course, we listen to US music, but it's too much. You know, it's too much LGBT, it's too much, we don't know if people are women or men, we don't like this kind of ambiguities, we don't like all, all this kind of, you know, nudity, violence, and so on. So I think there is also a kind of reaction by Central Asian societies, and in that case, it's also part by the younger generation that are also expressing quite conservative values, that there is a kind of reaction, okay, it's too much in terms of what the society is ready to accept. So that's a discussion about, you know, the the, the efficiency of U.S. soft power tool toward the region that can be also discussed more at, at the policy level. Which is interesting as well that 
the Russia also wades into these political debates about liberal values. Um, it sets up its position as a conservative actor vis-a-vis -vis the US, which is talking about um, these liberal values and promotes them. China, in contrast, takes the very technocratic approach where it seems to just stay out of these political discussions and debates, but tends to focus on ties with the government or you know, transfer provision of jobs or investments in infrastructure, these kind of things. Um, do you think that's viable in the long run, run? Or do you think the Russian strategy of involving itself directly in political debates is probably more competitive in the long run in the region? Well, the Russian perspective or strategy is more efficient, probably, but Russia can afford much more, at least so far, in the region that China can afford. I don't think anyone in Central Asia would welcome more Chinese involvement, you know, like a kind of direct visible Chinese involvement into domestic politics, into the way the societies are working. I think it would be very badly received, and I think the Chinese authorities know that very well. So as long as what is important for them is secured, they don't really try to push much because they know they will have the backlash. What will be interesting to see that if the Russian strategy can work for long in the region, right? That how long Russia can afford to be such an important partner. I mean, the links, the human links are still there and, and migration are kind of renewing the, the, the old Soviet links, but, but you can also feel that at least at the elite level, you have a growing kind of resentment toward Russia, especially in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan now that is taking kind of the shape of something like, you know, a kind of post-colonial critique of Russia uh, today, kind of revision of the, their interpretation of Soviet history. And so you can see this kind of friction tensions uh, uh, emerging. So on the long run, Russia will have to kind of reinvent itself in, in Central Asia to, to keep its, its status, while China, I think, is just happy with whatever it has because it has everything it needs. The rest is not so important for China. Which is interesting too, where we're seeing, especially in Kyrgyzstan, this growing anti-China backlash, especially with a lot of these small town protests or even attacks on factory workers, this sort of trend that seems to be occurring as the country has a growing uh, nationalist movement within it. So I think China is probably going to have to deal far more in the long run, um, whether it's, as we're seeing, a small uptick in the hiring of private security companies to protect their infrastructure and investments, or becoming more directly involved, like in Tajikistan, where we've now seen a Chinese paramilitary base set up in the Pamir Mountains. So do you think that there will be a time where China's going to have to navigate these political divides and backlashes by becoming more involved as a strategic actor in the region? They probably will have, but I think they, they try not, they try to postpone the moment where they will have that, right? Because they know very well that it will be difficult in Central Asia. They know that Russia can react not very positively to having this, this side of the Chinese involvement. And I think, I think the Chinese elites are really worried about you know, what is happening domestically in Central Asia. They don't really understand how these societies work. They don't want to be kind of in the middle of, of uh, local issues. So they try to stay in, in as much as they can kind of an, an, an outsiders. But as you said, the more there will be tensions, the more there will be protests, the more you could imagine in the future, it's not the case now, but they could be more attack 
attacks, for example, on some Chinese assets, then globally, the, and that's not only for Central Asia, right? It's the global China challenge. They will have to be more involved. And then if you want to have private security uh, uh, organization controlling your, your assets, do you want them to be Chinese people that will not feel good in Central Asia to have Chinese soldiers? Do you want them to be local uh, firms? But then it means you are part of all these kind of dirty, <laughs> shadowy uh, uh, aspect of Central Asian political slash military slash business life and so on. So I think for China, it's really not easy to, to find the right balance. What, was, what else was interesting was the fact that Kazakhstan had 78%, I believe the statistic was, of students who are still going to Russia, um, which just shows the overwhelming weight of, you know, these Russian institutions for training the, the country's elite, essentially. But many of them stated that it was not their preference to study, study in Russia. So I wonder that, that kind of dynamic where the bulk seemed to be going there, but they seem to be open at least for opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, the, the, the case of Kazakhstan is really interesting on the, the nuances they, they have toward Russia. So as you said, statistically, more people would like to go to US, China or Europe than they are in fact going to, to Russia, right? So, so they have to go to Russia because they cannot go to the other. If they could go to the other, then you would have less Kazakhstani students in Russia. But what we don't really know exactly is that the number of ethnic Russians, Kazakhstani ethnic Russians among these students. And so what seems to be the case is that almost all ethnic Russian Kazakhstani are going to Russia for study and then probably many of them are staying, right? So it's a kind of, it's almost an immigration uh, trajectory through, through uh, education. And then the Kazakhs, ethnic Kazakhs who are going to China, to Russia, are usually, you know, more kind of provincial middle classes group, those who couldn't access the Bolashak program that would have sent them somewhere else, those who cannot pay for studying, you know, on your own money somewhere else. Then you go to Russia because you still speak the language, it's easy, you can come back by bus, it costs less money to your parents and then and then Russia is very generous in offering a lot of fellowships for Kazakhstani students. So I think Russia is targeting both the ethnic Russians of Kazakhstan as students and the kind of second middle classes Kazakhstani level who cannot students who cannot afford to go somewhere else. So it's a specific niche, but it's a huge one because it's almost 80% of Kazakhstani students are going to Russia. Now, one place where Russia seems to be losing a little bit of ground to China is Uzbekistan, which is gaining a lot of interest, you know, with its post-Karimov reforms um, ongoing and the fact that it's such a powerful actor in the region. So a lot of people are eyeing it intently. But it seems there that China's probably gaining ground um, and positive perceptions there more than anywhere else other than Turkmenistan. Um, what do you think of the main driving forces behind that um, perception of China there? Yeah, you know, I would be more nuanced because I think Uzbekistan is reopening in every direction, right? And so they are so thirsty for everything they can have in terms of more interaction that it's more interaction with China, but it's also more interaction with the US in this, at the strategic level. And it's more interaction with Russia. I mean, Mirzoyev has very good relations with all the Russian establishment and there have been a lot of new contracts signed. So I think it just, Uzbekistan, just because it's reopening and it's a huge market and it has huge needs, huge needs, then there is room for almost 
everybody to suddenly uh, uh, increased uh, the, the, the relationship. But maybe something from the, the Karim of tradition will remain in Uzbekistan being quite careful toward Russia and more favorable toward China also because there is no share border. So there are a lot of issues that Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan may have with China that Uzbekistan doesn't have to face. But my interpretation of this kind of deepening of the Uzbek-Chinese links is that it's deepening on every direction coming from Tashkent with, with every actor who wants to be involved in Uzbekistan, then, then the room is open. I just remind the audience to submit their questions. We'll be taking questions in the next couple of minutes um, for the final 15 minutes of this session. I just wanted to ask quickly with regard to regional perceptions. We've seen this very critical of China in Kyrgyzstan and in Kazakhstan. But as we get to Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, increasingly has managed to maintain quite a positive view of China. It's often seen that China is very popular with elites in the region, particularly as a source of income and even rents in, in many cases, whereas the, the populace is far more skeptical often than the, than the elites are. Um, is there a correlation between the fact that certain media environments in these countries are far more restricted, there's less of a debate on China's position, and the fact that the countries that are more critical tend to have a more open media space? Yeah, I think that's a good point. So Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan have a more open media space. There are more places, room for, for critics toward the, uh, China. They also have lively social media world that plays a big role, especially those who are in national language in Kazakh and in Kyrgyz are very, very critical toward China. And as you said, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, much more controlled uh, media world, therefore much more kind of promotion of the official position of being pro-Chinese. But I would add another argument, which is that Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan don't have shared border with China. They didn't have to discuss kind of difficult border delimitation in the 90s. They are not afraid of any kind of demogra demographic invasion of uh, uh, Chine Chinese. They don't really see a lot of Chinese workers. They don't have this kind of cross-border exchanges. So I think for the population, China is further away and therefore is seen as more popular. For Tajikistan, it's not the case because Tajikistan has the border and the discussion with the, on the delimitation were, were, were tense. But I think the situation in Tajikistan is that people feel that they have so little, you know, kind of regional partners. So it's really Russia, Iran, and China. And so there are still this kind of positive feelings toward uh, China that is there. And it's really Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan where, where it's very difficult for China to try to build a, a kind of positive image. So I would say it's both media and the kind of geographical location probably. Uh, we have an interesting question from Eugene Husky from Stetson University. Um, he asks, is there a danger for Russia in the fact that it attracts, tends to attract enemy low-skilled workers, despite the fact that they're in very large numbers, whereas China is now targeting the future generation, people who will be working in the technology sector and the high-income kind of sectors um, and the future political elites and so, so on. Can China gain ground by targeting um, elites in this sense? And is Russia still, or can Russia compete by attracting just larger numbers of people from all class backgrounds? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. In terms of low-skilled worker, that's clear that if you are a low-skilled worker in Central Asia, you will not go to China because there is no job for you and the Chinese job market is really difficult and the salary is really so small that it's even not worth traveling. So Central Asian low-skilled workers have to go to Russia or they have to immigrate further away like the Emirates or, 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 or Turkey or different uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries. The way China will be now indeed attracting kind of IT <laughs> uh, engineer, um, IT communication people is really interesting. And that's something where it will be very difficult for Russia to compete indeed, because that's not where Russia is very strong. So I think that's in that specific sector of kind of IT uh, technologies, clearly China will take the lead and that will attract a lot of Central Asians. But Russia still has other domains of, of uh, um, specialized workers. If you are a physicist, if you want to work in the nuclear sector, if you want to work in the aviation sector, if you want to work in um, uh, the electric sector, they are still, Russia is still dominating. I mean, the big universities training engineers in all these kind of specialty, they are still in Russia. And as I say, Russia is usually very generous in terms of fellowship. So I think it will depend on on the specialization of this younger generation. If you want to be in the nuclear business, you will probably continue to go to Russia because that's where the, the, the connection will be. But if you want to be in uh, uh, artificial intelligence, then, then you will try to, to go to China. So maybe they can divide the, the market. And you know, in a sense, it was what I was saying for Uzbekistan, is that there are so little opportunity for Central Asian at home to get this kind of skilled applied knowledge that there is room for everybody to emigrate, Russia, China, or whoever can do Malaysia or Japan, South Korea or the West. So I think every big power and regional power can have a lot of Central Asians because they are already, all those who want this kind of specialty would be ready to emigrate just because the opportunity at home are, are really very limited. Um, Jeff Bell from the National Endowment for Democracy asks, um, where is Central Asian civil society succeeding when it's discussing China? And where is it failing? And what can or should Central Asian civil society do vis-a-vis -vis working with their populations' is understanding of China's role in the region? Yeah, that's a very good point. I think it really depends how do we want to define civil society in the region, because of course it's not an obvious definition in, in the Central Asian context, and that depends per, per country. You have a liberal, Western-oriented civil society that is very critical toward China, of course, in terms of, you know, the role of China in aggravating corruption scheme, the role of China in, in the re-education camps for Uyghurs and so on in, in, uh, in uh, the role of China in kind of buying elites. You have an Islamic civil society in Central Asia that tend also to be critical toward China because this is China and not respecting religious rights. But of course it depends on the country, right? You can see this uh, civil society existing at least in, in uh, Kazakhstan, more or less active in Kyrgyzstan, in the three other countries, it's very difficult to speak about an organized civil society. You have a lot of people who are organizing themselves in terms of, you know, doing charity activities, trying to create informal network, but a very kind of Western institutionalized definition of civil society doesn't work very well uh, uh, for the region. But my impression is that either the liberal oriented or the Islamic civil society tends to be very critical uh, 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 toward China in denouncing what, what 
the danger that China can bring uh, uh, to the region, but they are not very visible just because the political context is not favorable to them. So in fact, it's really social media that in a sense are educating Central Asians on, on their vision of China and whatever they can hear from people coming back from China. And that is very difficult to control or to reshape because social media have this kind of direct influence on your own perception that, that make institution, that make the job for institution to try to change your perception very difficult. That's an interesting point about um, the rise of social media in the region, particularly, I assume it correlates a lot with what you were discussing earlier on the, the rise of kind of conservative viewpoints among youth in Central Asia. Is social media really disrupting the information space in Central Asia in the sense that Russia still controls most of the cable networks, most of the news consumption as Russian media sources? which probably helps boost Russia, perceptions of Russia across the region. Could social media be a real entryway for the, for the US to regain influence in the region or for China to expand its own role in the region? Well, first, of course, it depends per generation, right? The social media, it's only for young people. If you are more than 35, you are not really influenced by social media. You still get your news from, from television, uh, uh, mostly. For younger people, I think they are more used to have dissociated sources of information. Young people still watch television a lot, but they also watch whatever on internet. It can also be television on internet or they have social media. I'm not sure it makes things easier for the US or for China because social media, they act as an echo chamber of whatever else is happening, right? So you also have a lot of pro-Russian narratives coming on social media you have a lot of conspiracy theories coming from all sides, from the Russian side, from the kind of Middle East Muslim, you know, uh, uh, side. So I'm not sure, I mean, I don't see how China could make a good use of social media, knowing how they are controlling their own social media, and I don't think they have anything they could sell. Of course, if you are a kind of, if you want to access some kind of Western style uh, uh, media, then social media is the place where you can, access them but that's only for the elites that is kind of oriented toward the west I, I my impression is that for the majority of citizens social media is just amplifying whatever is already existing and diminishing trust in any kind of institution and any kind any non-television on official state narrative so it's just a kind of echo chamber of of gossips of conspiration theory of the feeling that everybody there are hidden head everybody everywhere that nothing is really you are never told the truth and so on so i'm not sure it plays in favor of any of the the regional power uh david abramson asks um you know it central asians who have positive views of russians also tend to have positive views of the us and similarly their negative attitudes are often shared and correlate um, are these positive and negative attitudes um, similar with China as well? Have you noticed? Yes, so we have that very clearly in the Gallup data is that you don't have any geopolitical division pro-US, pro-Russia, pro-China. You have people who are open to any kind of international influence and people who are isolationist. So statistically, if you are pro-Russian, you are also pro-US and pro-Chinese. Or if you are anti one of the three, you are anti the three of them. And what is interesting is that this kind of isolationist position is mostly visible among ethnic, minor, ethnic majority. 
right? If you are a rural Kazakh speaking Kazakh, you have more chance to be anti-US, anti-China, anti-Russia. If you have, uh, if you are an urban elite uh, Russian speaking, you will be much, you have much more, more chance statistically to be in favor of the three powers, right? So the division is really multivectoralism or isolationism, but not really a geopolitical choice, one country against the two others. Harrison King from Berkeley asks, to what extent have Central Asian leaders publicly addressed the internment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang um, or expressed concerns behind closed doors to their Chinese counterparts? Um, or have they mainly remained quiet? And how has this impacted uh, perceptions of leadership? Well, I think very clearly in Kazakhstan, that has been a big concern. And we know the Kazakh authorities have tried to discuss with the Chinese authorities not really about the Uyghurs, because there is no legitimacy for Kazakhstan to do that, but to do so, but about the Kazakh minority sent in the re-education camp, the Kazakh authorities are really trying to, to negotiate with the Chinese authorities to have them uh, freed and then sent to, to Kazakhstan, given the citizenship and so on. So I think the Kazakh authorities have been trying to do something for the Kazakh minority, not really for the Uyghur minority, and I'm not sure they are doing it very openly when they are interacting with their Chinese counterpart because it's, they know it's a very sensitive uh, um, uh, question. And they also, you know, they are realistic, realist <laughs> uh, 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 people and elite. They look at what the West is doing. If the West is not protesting a lot, then they consider that it's not their job as small neighboring countries to become very vocal on something that where the West is not so vocal. So I think they do whatever they could, but it's very it was very limited. I guess to end with a, a more difficult question would be, what can the US do to improve its <laughs> image in the region and how could it compete with Russia or China, if at all, in this soft power regard? So what we could see both in the surveys and in the focus groups was that the US was very high in everything that was related to science, um, technologies, education. So it's really a domain where, where science and technologies, for example, where the, the vision of the US as being the kind of the, the leader is really very high above Russia, above China. So there are probably room for the US to kind of develop this aspect, it is not very costly to have, you know, tens of uh, tens or hundreds of Central Asians coming to study in the Silicon Valley, for example, that wouldn't be so costly compared to what has been the, the, the US spending in terms of military cooperation. And that's probably, there are not a lot of things I think that the US can do because they can, they are far away. They don't control the narrative. The local narrative is going against them. And for the moment, there is not a lot we can do to change that. So I think you have to work on a kind of long-term aspect and this long-term aspect is just kind of developing educational and professional links with the, the new elites and the, the, but not only political elites, I mean also these kind of middle classes, applied science, engineering oriented people. That's where you can hope on the long run to kind of make a difference and suddenly create a progressively a niche of people who are favorable to, to a, a more positive vision of the US. I guess we have time for one more quick question. Um, there's one from George Kroll who asks, um, what about the language issue? If knowledge of Russian is declining across Central Asia, what does it mean for Russia's long-term influence in the region? 
Yes, so first it's not sure that Russian language is declining. It depends what you define by Russian language, right? Because, because of labor migration, in fact, Russian language is arriving in rural region of Central Asia where it was not very present even during Soviet time. But it's a bad, bad quality, low quality level of Russian language, but it's still enough to watch television or read social media. Right, so I'm not sure. So depending if you define like really mastering Russian language, then it's declining in Central Asia. But if it's just a very passive, passive level of knowledge of Russian, it's in fact increasing because rural population now knows they need to speak Russian at least the minimal level if they want to, to uh, 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 migrate to, to, to Russia. And so, so I don't think it means that the Russian influence is declining also because national media language are reproducing a lot of things coming from Russia. So even if you watch a, a, a Kazakh official channel in, in Kazakh, it can be really a, a pro-Russian narrative or a narrative coming from Russia. So it's much more difficult to, to link the language issue with the cultural influence or political influence issue. All right, that's all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for, their, for tuning in and for their great questions. And I'd like to thank you as well, Marlene, for this really thank interesting you. discussion. The full report will be out soon, I imagine, with the Kennan Institute as a Kennan cable. Um, we'll provide updates for that um, near the time. But thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bradley. Bye. Bye.